This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome everyone into the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of SaltCityHoops.com, hence the name. Ben Dowsett, as always, joins us as as our co-host today, associate editor of Salt City Hoops. And, Con- and consigliere. Yes. I, think <laughs> I like it. The, I think that's the new title I actually want. Okay. Consigliere okay. of Salt City Hoops, Mr. Ben Dowsett. We, you know, I don't even know why you're listening us, to us today because we were so wrong last week about this NBA Finals. I mean, okay, we weren't the only ones. A lot say. of people yeah. felt that this series was done as soon as Kyrie Irving was, was out for the rest of the series. A lot of us thought it was done before that, <laughs> and, including, fair, yeah. including so, myself. I mean, you said it was probably a sweep. I was like, well, you know, because the Cavs are an NBA team, maybe I compared them to the Lakers. Maybe they'll win a game. And, and since then, they've won both games to take a 2-1 series lead in this NBA Finals. I mean, I, I really, uh, I, A, both don't really understand what's going on. I mean, I, mean, I, I do, but it, it's just like so different than what I came to know from this Golden State team. The best offense in the league is, is now all of a sudden in, in tatters, and the Cavs are winning with this ridiculous team of LeBron James and Matthew Dellavedova, uh, for which you could not find two more different people in in the entire world. I mean, it, it's it's incredible. It, it really is. I, th- you kind of said you, we know what's going on. We almost don't at the same time. <laughs> we can we can be watching it and understand what's happening while still kind of not understanding. We're gonna have Seth Partner on the show a little bit later in the second hour to kind of actually help us uh, using some numbers, but also some just raw why to try yeah. and help <laughs> kind of help us break this down. But we can do a bit on our own as well. Yeah. What, what did we get? What did we get? Not just we, mostly everybody. Like, so, sure, some people pick the Cavs, but as far as the outlets and the writers and, and people who I really highly respect on the game, I can't think of a single one that picked the Cavaliers to win this series. And most picked Golden State in six games or less. Yeah. And so what did, with, what did everybody get wrong? What, is this all just like sometimes basketball games go differently? Is that the whole explanation, or is there more tangible stuff we can put But it's happened three times in a row now in in very different ways than what we expected. So I I, I think we can safely say that it's not a fluke. Yeah. Uh, uh, So, first of all, I want to say, if if you want to tweet us during this conversation, tweet us at Andy B. Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett. Uh, You can also call and join us if you'd like, 877-353-0700, and by the way, we're going to get to some jazz draft stuff in our next couple yeah. segments. But we're going to start Thank off you. with finals because it was last night and it's tomorrow night. It's been awesome. I think it's the the, the hottest topic. Yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, it's the NBA finals. Yeah. It, we, it's it's the biggest. It's the most viewed NBA finals in in the history of ABC airing it. I didn't know literally that, since the Michael Jordan Utah Jazz NBA finals. Wow. It, it's got the highest record. So huh. you know, the, it's it's great. It's been a very interesting series, not only for us, but for the public. I mean, there's there's obviously been a lot of drama with the two overtime games, plus a close one last night. To answer your question, what went wrong or what what did we what did we misunderstand about these two teams? I think we overestimated how resilient Golden State's offense was uh, yeah. to essentially their two best players, Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, 
being shut down. I mean, quite frankly, to me, that's that's what I see. Number one, and that that the Warriors are, or sorry, the Cavs are are face guarding both Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, and making guys like Andre Iguodala, Draymond Green, and Andrew Bogut do offensive work. And quite frankly, it, it's not working thus far. Yeah. Um, Harrison Barnes was terrible last night. He was really, really bad. Uh, Draymond Green was pretty bad last night. He's, I mean, it's, he, he's been bad basically the whole season. He's been bad going back a series or two, honestly. You wonder if he's if it's pressure or maybe if he's wearing down a little bit from how, all the work he does on the floor. And, and it was mentioned that he's also got that back injury where right. that he kind of picked up, I believe it was game two. So, you know, it could be a confluence of factors. But regardless of the reason, uh, it's Golden State's role players that are that are not contributing – and really, we thought that the the biggest strength of this team was that if you took away one option, that the others could respond. Mm-hmm. The Cavs have shown that's not really the case. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, we've seen the every time Steph Curry goes into a pick and roll, he's got a a, a defense. Excuse me, a, a big man leaping out at him mm-hmm. while his defender, mostly Delavadova, continues to trail him. They're inviting that pass to Draymond Green with Draymond in a, in a, a wide open four on three type situation. There, uh, I believe it was Mike Prado over at uh, SB Nation wrote a really great breakdown today. Where and one of the stills he showed is Draymond at the top of the key with the ball and no person within had to be at least fifteen feet of him. Yeah, there, there was nobody close, I, and, and he didn't take that shot at a critical time in the game. Yeah. I mean, that was I believe that shots with or non shot I should say is with two minutes left with Golden State down three, something like that. Yeah. You you have to you have to take that shot. I mean, yeah. that's the that's the shot that you're dreaming of as an offense. Even if Green's not a great shooter, that's still an above average efficiency shot. Uh, you know, given what Green has shot to in his career thus far. Yeah. Now that being said, he's something like one for his last twenty on his last. And I think he's. Tw- I think he, I think I saw a stat today. He's like twenty five percent on open threes going back to the Memphis series or something mm-hmm. like that. Okay. And so instead of shooting that shot, he takes a wild drive right into Mozgov. Mozgov has dominated him so far in this mm-hmm. series. It's honestly getting a little bit sad when because Mozgov is his verticality. By the way, it's an overused term. I tweeted this last night, but he's been he's been so good. As far as as guarding the rim, he's going straight up nearly every time. He's doing all the right things. Guys are he's I mean he's outplaying Andrew Bogut at all the stuff we kind of thought Andrew Bogut was going to be doing really well in this series. Yeah, I I think they are. I think a little bit of it too is refereeing. I think that I think Mozgov is not um, stayed completely vertical on a lot of them. But Some honestly, of them I, honestly, yeah. I'm nitpicking there. Mozgov's been great to, to a point. That's a skill. Is if you can get away with it, that's, that's kind, I mean some of it's luck, I'm sure, but some of it is also you know you, they, Roy Hibbert. There's a reason Hibbert gets away with it so much when he's not necessarily always going straight up. Yeah. It's because he's he's reinforced that reputation over time. And yeah, you know you're right. Once the ball has come out of Curry's hands or has come out of Thompson's hand, and not even really out of Thompson's hands. I, I actually, you know what? Let me let me divert for one second. I did want to sure. say I think it is a little. The way Golden State has used Clay Thompson has been something I've a little bit wanted to pick a nit with Steve hmm. Kerr on. They have there, and it's little things. It's little things like not having him in the corner on certain actions that they run, where you're, there's a decent chance you're going to get an open corner look. They'll have Harrison Barnes there instead. Not really much point to that. You want the better shooter there in the corner. Yeah, they're not really running. They're trying to. Maybe this is just Clay taking his own initiative sometimes, but it seems like he's doing a bit more isolation and a bit less of his of his rocketing around screens and things. Or maybe the Cavs have just been really good. I, at I think those that's up. what it is. I think the Cavs have been really good at it, and I I think that because they're face guarding there, I think Steve would rather have Clay up the top in kind of the elbow three point extended rather than in that corner. Yeah. 
and, and then, yes, he's counting on Harrison Barnes. He's counting on Andre Iguodala. He's, he's counting on Draymond Green to make those shots. And reasonably so, because they did throughout the entire regular season and most yeah. of the playoffs. It, it's just that, for whatever reason, A, those shots aren't going in now. And, and honestly, Cleveland's just doing a great job defensively. Yeah, and you know, I think it's unquestionable that Iguodala, of those three that you mentioned, has been the best so far for Golden State. And while he's been good... If that's the case, I think you're kind of in trouble. If Iguodala yeah. is, especially offensively, if Iguodala is outplaying Draymond and Harrison Barnes. Which he I, has. Which he definitely has. I think you've got a bit of a problem going there. Now, speaking of Iguodala, I would start Iguodala beginning in Game 4. Or uh, Harrison to, Barnes? Instead of Harrison Barnes to hmm. guard LeBron. Would, would, would I think it's... I think he's, yeah. LeBron is roasting everyone except Iguodala, and, and occasionally roasting Iguodala as well, but Iguodala's making him work a lot harder for it and taking things away a lot more quickly. I, I mean, is it time to start doubling LeBron in the post? Is it time to start bringing more attention to him? Because honestly, now you've kind of seen, I, I don't know, Cleveland's offense hasn't been great during the series, don't get me wrong, but it, it seems like he's oftentimes their only path to scoring. And it's it's not as if J.R. Smith is hitting a ton of shots. It's not as if, you know, even Delhi is hitting kind of these floaters that you could probably get away with helping on. Um, I think you. I think it might be time. I think it might be time to help, help to LeBron. Know, I don't know if I agree, to be honest. I don't think there's actually much of a problem with what Golden State's been doing defensively. I've been mostly okay with it. I, I think if you start doubling harder at least, because they do do some of it, they do some shading and they do some showing and things like that, I think if you started doing it harder, he's going to tear you. Uh, Cleveland doesn't have awesome shooters, and you're right, guys aren't making a ton of shots right now, but part of that is because they're not getting any open shots, and if you start to bring in guys, there's no one better in the league at carving you up than LeBron from that post. Who's He's going to find those guys, and they're going to get those sure, shots. Sure, he's going to find them open, but I mean, in, in terms of who those role players are, you know, I'd rather have the, the players we mentioned for Golden State, Iguodala, Barnes, Draymond Green taking those shots than uh, Tristan Thompson, Mozgov, J.R. Smith, Iman Shumpert. I mean, more the guys for the threes is what I'm worried about. With is when you start trading to tougher twos because these, I mean, these aren't easy twos for LeBron. He's he's having to work for them. You trade those for what may be easier threes if he can find some guys open. And I mean, because if he's fi- if the open guy he's finding off those plays is Mozgov or, or Thompson, it's close to the basket, and that's not a good situation for Golden State generally. Um, I don't. You you could be right. We could see it. I mean, it's definitely time for something to change for the Warriors. Yeah. But I think the larger concern by far is the other end. Of I the agree. Court. And I, if I were them, I'd just put. I'd give Iggy more time on LeBron because he really. I think he's done about as good of a job as any individ, non Kawhi individual can do yeah. in the league. And I, I'd kind of keep saying, you know what, LeBron, if you want to keep doing superhuman things, he's got to wear down. At some point is the other thing Maybe. that I'm thinking if I'm Golden State. And if he doesn't and he can do six or seven games of this, then you know what? Kudos, dude. No, right. I don't <laughs> I, you, I don't think you can give him kudos. I mean, because uh, he has shown an ability to do six or seven games like this in previous playoff series. Well, I don't know that he's ever handled a load like not, this. Not like this. You're right. I mean, his usage percentage is at an all-time high for all of his playoff series. But I, I, I think you're risking too much with that question. You, you know, too, yeah. that there are better ways to win to me than to say – Let's have the best player in the world beat you. I guess Instead, it may let's be a... say let's have J.R. Smith beat you, or let's have Delavidova, or Tristan Thompson, or Mozgov. You know, like uh, to me, that's just such a risky proposition to say that LeBron James can't do something. You, yeah, you do probably up the variance a little if you start doubling him up and saying, okay, we're going to force these guys to make open or semi-open shots, because then if they don't, that you know that 
it, things start, you get more possessions out of it and things like that? I, I'm not even saying variance. I'm saying that if, if you're betting on LeBron wearing down, that's not the bet, bet I would take. Right, yeah. I, I would take fair. the bet of those guys missing their shots over LeBron wearing down. That's fair, and what we've seen through three games indicates that you're right. I just, I... Uh, Instinctively, I just I was I've been talking to so many people about this since last night. Instinctively, I just I can't stop myself from still thinking I don't fully believe this yet. You, I don't because you're you don't you haven't gotten on the LeBron James as not human bandwagon. I've been on that since like 2003. Well, then, He's been my as, singular as, favorite athlete as a non-human, then he doesn't get tired. Yeah. Okay, game one of last year's NBA Finals. Aside. It was really hot in there. So yeah, so long as their buildings continue to use air conditioning, that trick has been used before. We'll be fine. Right. Let's do a brief second here on Delhi, uh, yeah, Mr. Delavadova. First of all, I want to get one thing out of the way. Uh, guys, can we like stop with the whole dirty player thing with Delavadova? I'm not arguing he's had a I couple of questionable plays. Yeah. He has. I- he's had a couple of questionable plays. My response to that, as I tweeted last night, go watch John Stockton. If you're still a fan of John Stockton, after you're done with that, you have to be a fan of Matthew Delavadova too. Okay. He did all the same stuff. John Stockton would go for legs consistently on screens. It's known. The guys in the league talked about it. I've, mm-hmm. I've looked this stuff up. He, I've also watched him do it. Yeah. The, guys, this is just what happens when you're a smaller white guy. And, you, and I'm not saying that the thing with Corver was necessarily good or that the thing with Draymond last night was necessarily good. Uh, These are toe-the-line type of plays. But, guys, this stuff is – if any of you also claim to like the bad boy <laughs> Pistons, you need to stop because they did so much worse for so but much longer. Nobody, nobody, nobody's – I feel like you're making a straw man there. That like we can recognize John Stockton as a dirty player, still like him, and still say Matthew Delavadova is a dirty player. Uh, okay, that's fair. Yeah, I and just still think like that... him. But uh, regardless, I you know I think everyone loves Delhi. I think everyone also kind of thinks that he's doing everything what it, uh, that it takes to win, including sometimes stabbing at players' knees. I'm not going all the way to dirty. I really I I will say if he and but you just line. said John Stockton was dirty. Yeah, I think I think there's a longer track record with John Stockton than there is with Matthew Dellavedova. Sure, I mean, but that's just 21 NBA seasons for yeah, you. That's true. Um, yeah, but there are that. more interesting things to talk about right. with Dellavedova. Yeah, moving past that, we're and we're going to ask Seth about some of this stuff later because he has some of the numbers that can sort of tell us some of these things. But how much of Steph's struggles and Steph did get going near the end of last night? But how much of Steph's struggles do you think we can really attribute to what Dellavedova is doing versus? Cleveland's whole scheme as a whole. I lean towards the latter. What do you think? I, I don't know. I, I mean, I watch how tightly Delavadova is guarding him. And again, he's, I, I, I don't, I don't want to call them dirty tricks, but I, I, I think he's getting in Steph's head. I mean, it's, yep. it's, he's not attacking with the same force that he usually does. You know, usually he's using more speed and agility in order to get where he needs to be on the court. And, and Delhi is really stopping him from doing that. Now, uh, yeah, I, I mean, obviously a lot of it's still his scheme. But I, I don't think a team has as face guarded at Steph as, as effectively no. as, as Delavidova has. So they haven't. You know, you have to give David Blatt some credit for you Major. know sticking to that game plan. But I, I you have to give Delavidova credit as you know, one of the only players who's capable of actually doing that uh, on from especially playing as many minutes as he's playing. And I mean he went to the hospital after the game last night with cramps. You hope that he's okay going forward. That's one of those things when a when a guy this is gonna be potentially an issue for Golden State if they try and play David Lee more going forward because they had a lot of success with him last night. A guy can't just ride the pine all season and all of a sudden start playing thirty five minute nights and have nothing be a problem. Yeah. Especially with the intensity of the finals. That's there's conditioning worries there. And we're gonna see some of those. We saw it with Delhi last night. I 
I don't know that we see those with David Lee because, you know, the Warriors have many different options at the big, whereas the Cavs have no options at point guard. That's very true. The other thing that I think that he's done really well as part of the scheme, but he's doing a great job of it, off the ball, they are not letting Steph have the type of of and it's not like anybody has ever played off him off the ball. You have to stick close to Steph all the time, but the way they're bumping him every time he comes through a screen, the right. way they're they're getting a body into him even when he's just standing around away from the play, and that's smart. You talked about getting into his head. I think they are to a, to some point. You you know, I do think he's going to get it right and I think he figured some things out at the end of last last night's game. I think we may see a little more aggression from him. Yeah, I mean, in the end, Steph Curry was actually really good last yeah, night. I mean, 10 for 20, 7 for 13 from 3, 27 points, 6 assists, 3 steals. I mean, you, you take that every time. It's the 0 for 8 from Harrison Barnes. It's the 2 for 10 from Draymond Green right. that, that's really getting you in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned David Blatt. I, I you said some credit. I, I think we have to give a huge amount of credit. To I mean, this on guy. Twitter, I I, <laughs> I I would joked about it, but you can make a case that David Blatt's the best coach in the world. Um, with his, <laughs> I'm serious. With no, his I mean, European uh, resume, you know, 17 championships in in Europe. Yep. Plus, if if he wins this one, I mean, uh, with that talent level, now look, Greg Popovich exists, but yeah. like if if you look at what he's done for this team and and what he's done in the past in, in Europe, you know, maybe this guy's just been under-regarded for, for long enough. One, you know, and there's a lot of talk that, and this is true, generally uh, X's and O's tactical stuff is actually a little larger of a point of emphasis in many of the European leagues than it mm-hmm. is in the NBA because the NBA has such spectacular athletes at times that some coaches tend to to not place as much emphasis on that. Um, and he's, Blatt was known for all those years in Europe as a defensive guy he was known as a defensive specialist and we're seeing that right now he's he has really been masterful two things in particular that I wanted to highlight for him they have to do with each other those are pace and transition we've noticed the the Cavs are slowing the ball down intentionally offensively I was complaining about this earlier in the playoffs and I am no longer because I can see exactly why they're doing it now they're they're intentionally waiting until 14 to 13 12 seconds on the shot clock before they even initiate their stuff the whole goal of that is to slow the game down get their guys as much rest in between plays as possible and the tangential effect is they're completely limiting Golden State's transition offense. They're running, uh, you know, James yeah. Jones has been doing this, where after a made basket, he'll just hang out next to Curry so Curry can't take the inbound pass clean off the mm-hmm. made basket because Golden State likes to run right back up the court there real quick, get in pseudo transition. Yeah, I mean, they've, none of that. they've only had four fa- they only had four fast break points last night, right. uh, and, and the Cavs had 16 turnovers. So, like, you know, ideally— they, you know, knowing the Warriors' offense, or at least we thought we did, that would be somewhere in the range of twenty fast break points. Absolutely, and, you know, four is is absurd. And to be doing that while also now they didn't get very many offensive boards last night. In fact, the Warriors won the offensive rebounding battle three to one last night. Mm-hmm. So it's eighteen to six, if I'm not mistaken. But with how heavily Cleveland pursues the offensive boards, to be giving up that few points in transition, and I think a big part of the reason you mentioned the the turnovers. Cleveland's turning the ball over, but they're doing it mostly underneath the basket, and that's part of the benefit of doing such a LeBron isocentric thing. Now, your offense isn't going to be as beautiful, and it's not going to flow as well, and it puts no, a lot it's, of it's, it's really pressure ugly. on LeBron. But at the same time, you're not running as many high pick and rolls. You're not running as many passing-related actions where you could have turn. 
the the term is a pick six turnover. I think this is actually something Seth yeah. had coined on Twitter that a turnover that's going to lead to an easy dunk or layup on the other end. Yeah, We've above the break turnovers exactly. is, is actually how the Jazz refer to it. Okay, and that's that's what they you know are trying to limit is anything above the free throw line. Yeah, um, they're they're trying to. To avoid just because that does so often lead to a, a transition basket on the And there's end. been basically none of that, which is another tangential benefit of the style they're playing. You just have to give so much credit for recognizing that this was their shot. This is their chance at minimizing the talent gap between the two teams. And so far we've seen it happen. I've been... Re- I've- we have mea culpas. It's written in our notes here. We, had- we have mea culpas to give. We were wrong. Uh, yeah, no. We're, we're so wrong. <laughs> I mean, again, I... I- you said that it would be a sweep, and and we're we're confident of that. Um, after Kyrie went down, mm-hmm. I I thought it would probably be a sweep. Although I thought there might be some lucky games. I don't think either of these last two games have been lucky games. I I, I really do mm-hmm. think that it's it's been a dominating performance by the Cavs. There's a little um, bit of luck as far as the open shots. Golden sure. State, Golden State. I think I maybe. saw some maybe. From I mean Sherwood Strauss today. Like the Cavs have missed. Or the Cavs have made, uh, attempted as many open threes as Golden State has missed yeah, in the series so far. But, I mean, we we keep saying that open shots are, are luck entirely. And I'm not, not convinced that they are. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at, for example, how well the Jazz did on opponent open shots last year. And that happened to coincide when, with, with when Ennis Cantor was traded. You know, I, I think that there is something to say about a hard closeout making a difference that yeah. maybe SportView doesn't pick I, up. I absolutely agree. Um, and, and so I, I don't think that it's just luck. No, I, I agree, don't. and I think this is the second straight series now. We've seen Cleveland's opponent shoot these really terrible figures on open threes, and at some point you have to start thinking yeah. there's something more to it than simple variance, which... Yep. A, lo- a part of it has to be variance and luck, but after a certain amount of time, there has there has to be other stuff involved. And honestly, well. like the Warriors made thirty six percent of threes last night. That's not terrible. Mm-hmm. That that's that's about league average. You know, you you take that if you're the Warriors and and probably expect to win. But it's it's on the other shots where there are only twenty four of sixty six that that's really a problem. Uh, you know, and then of course uh, just that they're not getting anything in the fast break. Yeah. But we've, we've talked about that. The last thing before we take a break yeah. is just their Cleveland's front court has thoroughly outplayed that of Golden State's, which was, I think was another thing we didn't necessarily think was going to happen. Um, Bogut has has he played over thirty minutes in any one game yet in the series? I don't think he has. Um, his his rim protection has really not been what we've expected. You wonder if he's maybe dealing with some kind of a some kind of a nagging thing. Um, and Draymond, we already mentioned, has just been kind of a tire fire, especially offensively. <laughs> and the other thing with Draymond is that we're ta- when we're talking about a mental standpoint, he needs to get his focus back together. The The guy is standing around screaming at refs after every call that he doesn't get. Yeah, but he's always done that. He has, and now is the time when you can see it starting to affect his game, and you ne- he needs to... No, if he did it before and does it now, and he was a good player then and is a bad player now, like I, I think it's safe to say that they have nothing to do with each other. I don't... Well, it's definitely a lot more than that, but I don't know that... The, I think he's letting the frustration kind of overwhelm him at certain points. I, I agree that he's he's frustrated, but that's more about what's happening on the, on the court with his own performance rather than what's happening with the referees. I, yeah, that's true, but then it comes out on the referees, and I think... But he, it doesn't he, matter. It's not like he's getting text or anything. Well, he maybe should have in a couple of cases, <laughs> which is but part of why I, I mentioned that. If he keeps that up, the refs have started to notice him. The refs now, all they all know him. They all know he's a yeah. winner. Eventually, he's going to start getting hit with those by based on reputation alone. Uh, I mean, sure, but uh, A, to this point, he hasn't, and B, I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, we, we saw earlier in the season he was a good player, even though he whined to the refs before. 
I, I think that's wrong to say that that's had anything to do with his bad performance. Certainly not a large amount to do with it. Not at all. Meh. Agree with me. No, Okay. Well, I. <laughs> that's the closest I've gotten you to agreeing with me in, in like a week. <laughs> Since last Friday when we got the series prediction wrong. Yeah. All right. We're, we're going to go ahead and take a break. On the other side, we're going to talk about uh, the, the NBA draft and in particular the mock drafts that have come out around the NBA in the last week. Talking about who the Utah Jazz will be selecting this in this year's draft at the number 12 spot. That's coming up next on the Salt City Hoop Show ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. It is indeed Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of Salt City Hoops. Ben Dowsett, as always, with me. Um, Want to get into the mock draft uh, stuff before we, we talk about the NBA Finals again at the top of the hour. Uh, there's there's a lot of movement in, in this draft board in, in the last two or three days, I would say. Yep. And, and I've I've felt that as well, talking to team executives um, and, and that sort of thing. I I feel that maybe what we thought of as the tiers in this draft are, are starting to change a little bit among some of the teams who are making those top lottery picks that that ultimately decide you know where these guys are going to be going. Um, to give you a couple of examples, in Sports Illustrated's mock draft today, Willie Cauley Stein falls to the Jazz at number twelve, and that's who they end up having them take. Um, uh, let's see uh, another example in, in Draft Express's mock draft again released today. Uh, Stanley Johnson from Arizona falls to the Jazz, where you know we had thought he was a top nine, top ten guy for sure. Uh, uh, you know, all of a sudden we're starting to see movement going on. Uh, what do, what do you think is happening? Well, first of all, I think this is one of the most fluid draft classes we've had in a while that I can remember at least in mm-hmm. s- in several years. I think there's been there's that top f- six ish. But even those, you know, there are even some people that have Porzingis falling. Where, where now, I think DX today had him in there, had him third, right? If I'm not mistaken, which is crazy. Like over D'Angelo Russell, like we would have thought that was nuts. Um, Hezonia has been all over the place. Um, Kaminsky on some boards is as high as like six and as low as fifteen on some others. But then Chad Ford moved uh, Porzingis, or sorry, D'Angelo Russell, all the way to number two. So like, okay, you know, there's uh, at least in his big board of what he thinks executives thinks about it. Now right. maybe uh, Jonathan Giffney with with Draft Express has heard from Philadelphia someone with the Philadelphia organization who who says that they like Porzingis a lot. Heck, I bet that's what's happened given where he is now yeah. in their mock draft. Um, that seems crazy to me. I, I know that they don't care about fit as much over there because they're just trying to draft assets at this point. But when you've already got Embiid and Noel and a guy, if uh, assuming a guy like Russell is sitting there, oh man, I just think that's crazy if they went for another big man. But I get, you know, they do things th- their way and there's a lot of people that, that are really for that sort of value-based draft. You only draft on who you think the best player is going to be regardless of anything else involved. Um, one, one thing real quick, uh, why would the Jazz take Willie Cauley-Stein? Because then you have three incredible defenders as your big rotation. You lose nothing by putting in, you know, last year the Jazz lost a lot when they put in Trevor Booker, for example, or Jeremy Evans playing backup center or, you know, Ennis Cantor. If you have three incredible defensive big men, then you can implement your entire system across the board. You can switch everything at every point. Uh, you know, I, I think that gives you a lot of flexibility. I would, I would. Trade that pick really? many times. Before Why I would draft? Explain Willie that. You, so you don't like Willie Cauley Stein at all? No, I had him low Why? on our list that we did last week. You, but you had him higher than twelve. I did. I had him higher than twelve. But that was in a, like that was my vacuum type thing where I would. There are certain guys that I had in there who I would like. So why don't you like him on the Jazz? 
I don't I as we know I'm I'm huge into things like fit and where the team is going but right I now. see the fit and no, I, I see, I don't see it, the fit at all I don't I don't I think you don't I don't think you need another seven footer to be backing up the ones you especially another one who can't shoot to have three seven footers that can't shoot the ball I, mean, I guess favors can a little bit he's come along there but I my opinion continues to be that if you're drafting a big man especially this year when there's a couple there who can you need to draft one who can shoot I, and I, I I don't so you'd rather have Frank Kaminsky than really call you Stein yeah yeah, I just not at all. I I totally disagree with I you. I had on him that. above him on my in my. I know, but I I I kind of argued with it you then. Yeah. But I mean, now it's now it's a jazz. Now it's real. I mean, but I I think Willie Cauley Stein is a, is an excellent defensive prospect, a, a guy that would fit in with the Jazz roster and philosophy and system really well. Now, yeah, you don't get variety in how you can play different opponents. I and agree. I think that's what a you're huge do- deal. Uh, I don't know that it is. I think it's a huge I, deal for a team that's I trying think, to make the playoffs. Uh, so. We've seen the, just just this year. We just talked about the finals on the last segment, and we've seen that the amazingly Cleveland has somehow been the more versatile team thus far. But neither of those guys can shoot. Mozgov no, and, and Thompson. No, no, I was talking conceptually as far as versatility goes. You have to have multiple looks to give to people. You have to have stuff. You what can multiple go looks do Cleveland have to give to someone? They have one look. Right, like uh, well, they no, only they have, have six players right look, now. But the look that they're in right now is completely different from the team that entered the playoffs a month ago. Sure, it's, which was some of it was forced. But, but yeah, sure. that's that's but, forced. That's not you know they they play one way against one opponent and play another way against another opponent. I mean, I, I to me, I think the future for the Jazz is is a Memphis Grizzlies future where you impose your style of play on on a on a team. You know how much better Memphis would be if they had a third big that could come in and shoot threes? And Not could, that much better. Oh, they'd be so much better. They had like if they had a third guy who could come in for 20 minutes a game and shoot threes alongside either Gasol or Randolph, they would be so much better. That I, I really that's just a, this is a big thing for me. I'm, I'll die on this hill if I have to. You I die on every hill. I die on a lot of hills. That's true. <laughs> I, I've I have planted on a lot of hills and died there. But uh, th- I, I just don't think. I think it's an overlap. I think if you're drafting him, you're drafting overlapping skills for the guys you already have. And if there's no other option that you see as as high a value as him remaining at 12 when he's there, I think that's when you look to trade it. If if it's me, I, I the the thought process could be very different up above me. I just I'm not, especially at the stage the jet. Like for example, we were talking about the Sixers a second ago. If the Sixers wanted to overlap some guys because they're four years minimum away yeah. from where they're thinking about doing anything, then that's fine or more fine. Then the Jazz, who may, you know, I think they really want to make the playoffs next year, and I think they really want to try and go somewhere in the playoffs the following year, if not earlier. But you look at positionally, and that's my my issue with some if, with the seventy sixers is if they draft if they draft Porzingis, he's getting like five minutes a game next year. Yeah, you know, he's just not getting any playing time because they have eight other different bigs. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but slightly, <laughs> they they've got a ton of young bigs who they won't be able to give time to Porzingis. If the Jazz draft Willie Cauley Stein, then they have a lot of time to give to to Willie because you know they don't have any backup bigs to this point. The Jazz don't. I mean, no. Booker is a backup big. Uh, okay, but it's it's still up in the air to, as to whether or not the Jazz keep Booker at all. I mean, they uh, sure and Trevor Booker is a backup big, but he's that's a less big issue than like Joel Embiid being in the way of, of your of your playing. Game. I I agree with that, but I also am talking about Willie Cauley Stein overlapping with your starters because in a couple years this is the guy who has the pedigree to potentially be a starter level player in the league. And I'm not saying you can't necessarily figure things out down the line, but I, I've, again, I've, I've made my whole thing has been known here for a while. I'm I'm huge on fit. I'm huge on not 
uh, on trying to fill the few needs that I believe the Jazz have left this on their roster. This just doesn't work out, though. Like, and give me an example of when this drafting for fit thing has worked. Oh, hold on. Give me a second. I, I yeah, this is, I this is completely out of the blue. I'm sorry. But... I mean, did Nicole, did Nikola Miritich this past year? Uh, he wasn't drafted. He this was past drafted year. in 2011. Like they weren't drafting him for need. They were drafting him because he was the best I Euro how available. Far back he was drafted. Let me, if you, let me give me to the next segment. And I'll come <laughs> okay. Up with yeah, I'll, I'll let you do the research. Drafting for fit has clearly worked for it. And, well, and the the issue with that is that when you're talking about drafting for fit, you're you're comparing it to drafting best player available, which is something we discuss. And knowing who the best player available is isn't always necessarily possible. At yeah, this point you in time. you don't know ahead of time, but you you can have a guess. And based on what we know thus far, there's a reason Willie Cauley Stein is ahead in mock drafts compared to Frank Kaminsky. But see, I actually, th- if you were asking me. I think there is a legitimate chance that in a vacuum, Frank Kaminsky becomes a better NBA player. Uh, than no, I, I agree. There's, I, I have to agree with you that there's a chance. But I if think you ask, a good if you if you ask the experts on this draft, they will feel the opposite, right? I mean, but uh, the you're, experts you're, get stuff wrong a lot. I, I know. For example, <laughs> us. But you have to admit that you're on an island here. Not entirely. Okay, I'm you're not. A, you're you're on a compared to sparsely populated island. Compared to consensus, I guess I'm on a slight island. But I, I mean, there's a reason we've seen Cameron Payne, for example, who was not even on anyone's board a month ago, all of a sudden is threatening to crack the top ten right now because sometimes the consensus and the experts miss things. There tends to be a bit of groupthink that goes into this sometimes, and yeah. teams like the Knicks get laughed at for considering Trey Lyles with the number four pick, which I'm one of the people laughing at him to be honest. But it, maybe. There's something to this whole zig where everybody else is zagging type of thing. Not always, but every now and then. And I think the draft is one of those areas where that could potentially be most possible just because every year, every year, without question, we get some of them wrong. And the, yeah, yeah. And the, and the actual draft order gets some of them wrong. And Rodney Hood drops to 23rd or Rudy Gobert drops to 27th. You sure. Know? And, and, and players drop all the time. That's why you want to take those players like Willie Colley Stein. But um, argument one, no, no. I, I'm, I keep trying to claim victory on the show today, and it's never going to work. It was a good counter, though. I, I, I would think that's plus. I just don't. I think one of the other teams before then will jump on him if he falls that. Yeah, I know. I, I agree. I think it's pretty unlikely he falls there. Um, just some other mock drafts that have happened uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, or really the last week. Uh, Chad Ford's last mock draft had Jazz taking Miles Turner. That would be a slight fall in itself, though not as big as the Willie Cauley Stein one. Right. Uh, NBA.com's last draft you'll be happy with had the Jazz taking Frank Kaminsky. Uh, USA Today's last mock draft had them taking Kelly Oubre. I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, Basketball Insiders kind of wrap up mock draft had two of the two of the experts at Basketball Insiders taking uh, the Jazz, had the Jazz taking Devin Booker, one Frank Kaminsky, one Stanley Johnson. CBS had one taking Oubre, one taking Looney, one taking Booker. Looney. Yeah, I mean, at twelve, at twelve, uh, I don't and, see the Jazz taking Looney unless they trade. No, him. I, I don't think so either. But I, I, I think there's a, I think he's around that range where it's, it's not an unreasonable pick. I just don't think that he, he yeah. fits with the Jazz's uh, philosophy. Right. Uh, NBA draft not draft dot net, the the famous website that once compared Deshaun Stevenson to Michael Jordan, uh, has the Jazz taking Sam Decker right now. Seems like they're up to their old ways. <laughs> Sam Decker is a reasonable pick. I shouldn't say. See, every time I criticize one of these picks, I'm being a hypocrite because at the same time, I'm talking about how even the experts know nothing, and we are not nothing, but we get stuff wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm I've been really opinionated about Decker. I don't like him at all, and don't think he's going to be good in the NBA. I'll probably be completely wrong. And I and I would say that I I don't a the Jazz don't necessarily agree with you. In fact, I would say they don't. Uh, Interesting. And, and B, um, I I yeah. I, again, I I just don't know. 
that it, it's it's hard for me to say. I, I I have my opinions on these guys. You know, I I don't like Kelly Oubre. I, I don't really love Kevon Looney. What do you think of Decker? I mean, dude, I, I don't remember I, what you said last I like week. Decker a little bit, but I, I, I think he's a high floor, low ceiling kind of prospect. Um, might be low both, <laughs> personally. See, and I, don't think probably af- don't I don't think his athletic profile translates over. And I, I think, worst case, athletically, he's like Joe Ingles, and the, it works out in mm-hmm. the end because he, he's skilled enough. Possible. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of where I fall on Decker. Doesn't but, somebody have the Jazz taking his Zonia? Yes, uh, Sean Devaney. Uh, has them taking Estonia. Admittedly, that mock draft was published about three weeks ago, okay. so I didn't put as much stock into that. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that could happen, although we talked about it on the show yeah. last week. Uh, his buyout situation makes it so that if, if he were to fall to number 12, would be making a, a much smaller NBA salary, may not come over to the NBA as quickly, may, uh, you know, plus he's may got potential slide. got potential attitude issues as yeah. well going on although that's you know the dra- the jazz would definitely do their due diligence before they drafted a guy like that oh absolutely i mean well they're they're doing their due diligence on everyone that's, yeah oh yeah it's it's actually kind of incredible what sort of research goes into these prospects especially personality wise they want so much to figure out if guys are just are supposedly hard workers because of course college coaches say every player they have right. is a hard worker yeah. because they want them to be drafted or they really are uh, focused on their improvement, doing it the right sort of way, are, are keeping themselves out of trouble. That, sort that of whole thing. investigative process would be really interesting to it's, me It's sometime. like, I mean, it's not like they have uh, undercover agents or anything tracking these guys, but it is kind of incredible, just like the level of due, dil- due diligence they're doing, calling you know family members, calling associates, calling college roommates and friends, you know, whoever they can get a hold of in order to find out about the prospects, especially as we start approaching the end of this draft where, uh, you know, now the the list of, of possible picks, I believe, is shorter. you got to find the guys that don't like them. you got to find somebody that's, like, not in their group or in their family or anything like that. That's where I think that's where. But you don't want someone to hold a vendetta or a grudge either because no. if they're lying that way, that's not helping you either. Yeah, good point. It's 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 tricky. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's go ahead and take a break. On the other side, we've got more jazz news. A new assistant coach for the Utah Jazz. Jazz mini camp happening yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and much more news about the Utah Jazz that's coming up next on the Salt City Hoop Show, ESPN 700, your home of the NBA Finals. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome back into the Salt City Hoop Show. Andy Larson, Ben Dowsett. As always, by the way, you can feel free to tweet us about anything we've talked about, the, the NBA Finals, the, the NBA Draft, any of the news today from, from mini camps to, and more. Uh, Tweets are quiet today. They are. Let's pick it up, guys. Well, to be fair, we, we're on a different That's day true. than normal. You know, yeah. we're, we're doing the show on Wednesday rather than Thursday, thanks to the NBA Finals Game 4 tomorrow. Stupid Finals. That's a 7. No, not stupid I'm, Finals. These I'm Finals joking. are amazing. I'm joking. Um. But, yes, feel free to tweet us again at Andy B. Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett. Or, of course, you can call us 877-353-0700. A couple of jazz news notes to talk about. Uh, Jeff Watkinson, who is uh, an Atlanta strength and conditioning coach, has been hired as an assistant coach by the Utah Jazz, according to Chris Vivamore of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So just to confirm for the folks real quick, he's not being hired as a strength coach. for the. He's being hired as a higher position as an assistant coach. That's what's been reported by Chris. Okay. That being said, I A, we have not really received independent confirmation of that yeah, from anyone it. around the Jazz. Um, that being said, people around the Jazz are very hard to get a hold of right now because of the minicamp and, and whatever else. 
and the the NBA draft. So I, th- that doesn't particularly surprise me. Uh, but I, I that's what was reported by Chris Vivlamore is that uh, Watkinson was hired as an assistant coach, not a strength and conditioning, not not a lateral move. Okay, which makes sense generally with with team to team moves. It up. has to be a move up. Yeah. So and he knows Quinn Snyder from when Quinn was in Atlanta. Right. The the joke is that Atlanta is taking all of our players, but we're taking all of their coaches. It's cool with me. It seems fine, right? Yeah, it's all right. Um, <laughs> but that'll be interesting to see what role he ends up taking. Uh, you know, he his background, his educational background, is mostly as a, a medical type of strength and conditioning sort of uh, training. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what his basketball mind is as well. I think it's pretty clear, if I am just interject for a second, yeah. that the, the Jazz are putting a lot of emphasis on uh on fitness health that we we know they have a a, a deal, the deal with p3 out in california mm-hmm. which is i got a i did my basketball insiders chat this morning and got a question about that so i was doing some some digging in there nothing deep of course but uh They've got that. They I talked about earlier in the year about the um, the patches that were getting put on players in the locker room where they that hooked up to the linked up to their cell phones. And yeah. I talked to Gordon Hayward about them. They were about rest and recovery, essentially tracking uh, those things for a guy, heart rate, all that type of stuff. Um, I I think the Jazz are right with that revolution, as along with some of the more advanced teams in the league. There, I I mean, if that some of that is speculation. We don't necessarily know what's going on behind closed doors, but. Just from what I've seen and from this type of a thing, it looks like the Jazz are making a real commitment there, which I like. I think that's a, a frontier that the the smarter teams are going to gain real advantages from within the next few years. Yeah, and I, I mean, San Antonio's been great at that. Phoenix, is, as we all know, has been great at kind of mm-hmm. embracing the latest in medical science in order to make their players healthier. Did you and it really Ken, does make a difference on the floor. Did you read Ken Berger today uh, on LeBron uh, no. recovery? Uh, it was on CBS. Really, really good article. I suggest everyone check it out. Basically just detailing the 48-hour process that LeBron goes through once a game ends to mm. get his body back to the for the next game. It's insane, first of all. And, See, and you think he'll get tired. Yeah, I know. Um, it, that And just in general, that that type of stuff is available to all players. is I think it's a big thing, and I think the teams that do the best job of embracing that when it's still sort of in its infancy, not not in its infancy, but definitely there's still more to learn and still more to know. And I, I'd say that there's advantages to be had. Yeah. Um, you know, we've seen how many teams have been affected by injuries over yeah. over this NBA playoffs. Uh, of course, Cleveland's been hit, hit worse than anybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and maybe it's the teams that, that really embrace this do do the best job. Yeah. All right, other jazz news. Uh, jazz minicamp yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Yesterday was just a, a physical day, uh, measurements, et cetera. And then today and tomorrow, they're doing two-a-day workouts. Uh, the, the media was invited to see the last few minutes of today's scrimmages and, and whatnot between the players. Um, it, it's something that they do every year, where, or at least have since Dennis Lindsay was hired, where they're bringing in uh, 27-ish. It was 27 for this year and last year and a little bit fewer for the, the year previous. But kind of getting an idea of what's out there in, in this kind of free agent class okay uh so it's guys like dewan johnson um he he looked really good today it's actually really interesting to me how even at this like fringy nba prospect level you can still tell who the best fringy nba prospects are okay uh jawan johnson was there for sure uh marquise teague jeff teague's little brother right, okay. um was actually he went to kentucky as well too mm-hmm. right yeah. yeah uh really impressed me uh scotty wilbekin was good as well uh, oh, although scotty. took a lot of shots my buddy alex would be really happy he's a florida guy well he was he <laughs> 
he was very excited to show how good he was at basketball okay. and, and took a lot of shots and made some of them. And so uh, that means uh, he missed some of them as well. Missed I think. some of them. Yeah. Um, he's clearly small, but regardless, he he fights out there, which is which is nice to see. Okay. Um, you know, we talked to uh, Dave Fredman, the the director of I, I forget what his title is, pro pro player scouting or something like that. Mm. Uh, and. and it is kind of a unique thing that the Jazz are bringing in as many players as they do. They foot the bill for all of these prospects to come into Utah huh. and, and stay for a few days and, and really... That's some cash. So, yeah, I mean, if you do the 27 times, you know, what would that cost overall? $2,000 or so, um, you know, every year, and then you do that for all of the... That's $54 draft million. Dollars. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, it's not. You, you added a couple extra zeros. But, you know, it's, it's not cheap. Uh, and, and so it's cool that the Jazz are doing this just to kind of chase after those sort of guys. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Christopher and Jack Cooley both went to the min- the mini camp last year, as did Darius Morris. So Erst guys Wild can end up on a roster up. after this. It's yeah. it's a way of seeing these guys, so you have a dossier on them later on. Yep. And, and then the Jazz uh, draft party announcement was today. So the Jazz are doing their typical uh, draft party at Energy Solutions Arena, June twenty fifth. They're giving out hot dogs to the first three thousand fans. Woo. Uh, Craig Buller, Jack, and Ron Boone will be there emceeing the event. David Locke out in, uh, I don't know, in New York covering the draft. Our own Dan Clayton should be there Dan as well. There. Yeah. Uh, so that'll be awesome. We're, we're going to be getting some live coverage of the NBA draft from him. And, uh, you know, there are free throws to be taken and stuff at ESA too. So that'll be as much fun as you want to have taking okay. an NBA free throw on an actual NBA court, which admittedly is kind of cool. I actually really like that draft party. It's are you going? I mean, I I imagine that they'll have us in the Zions Bank Basketball Center again. That's kind of what I thought. Uh, because that's where Dennis Lindsay and company are are going to be actually making those decisions, and yeah. where we can interview them after they make those choices. Right. So I imagine that we uh, the media will be gathering there, but who knows? Maybe it'll change. All right. Anyway, those are your three jazz announcements. I just wanted to get those out of the way, but there is significant things going on in Jazzland. Uh, the next workout, by the way, is. Saturday, so Saturday. if you are a draft workout aficionado, watch watch for that. Okay. I'm stoked. We're going to have Seth on in the next segment, and we're going to get into some of the real nitty-gritty of why and how here with this finals and how this is happening. I'm yeah, stoked. Seth Partnow from Nylon Calculus, um, the, the Washington Post Fancy Stats blog, excellent writer, great Twitter personality. He's coming up next on the Salt City Hoop Show, ESPN 700, your home of the NBA Finals. Talking Hoops and the Association. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Everybody, welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of saltcityhoops.com, the ESPN Troop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. Ben Dowsett, consigli- what were we calling you? Consigliere. Consigliere, Don't sure. you watch Godfather movies like once a week? <laughs> Every week. <laughs> I don't know what that was. It, oh, it, okay. it, was, it was awesome. I'm... <laughs> Can we play that more often? I like that sound. Um, okay, deal. Okay. Omnipresent. Can we go? <laughs> okay, we have a person to talk to. We, yeah, should, we do. We should do that now. We've, we've got <laughs> Partno of Nylon Calculus, the Washington Post, uh, Fancy Stats blog, and much more. Basically, NBA Twitter uh, personality, Seth Partno. And, and, Excellent follow, by the way, if you want to follow these NBA finals or anything NBA-related. Seth, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. That was actually me making that noise. So, <laughs> another nice. one of my talents. Nice. I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> so, guys, Seth, also, another thing that Seth, in fact, I would think, I don't know, Seth, you might correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think of this as one of your 
main calling cards within the last year or so is the you are a purveyor of the sport view. You uh, and not even just the sport view, uh, really a lot of these sort more detailed stats that allow us to parse the things that our eyes are seeing in more effective ways than the traditional stats allow us. Would that would that be a, a decent description there? I I think I've spent a, uh, as much time with with anyone that doesn't have access to the, the kind of the inner workings with the uh, with the stuff that's publicly available. I think I've if I can toot my own horn, I've spent a lot of time with it. Yes, I don't. You don't have to toot it as much. There's enough of us that do. Um, <laughs> so based on that research that you've done. We're through three games of this finals, and Andy and I spent 25 minutes before kind of talking about some of the more more visual, the more typical reasons that you'd that you'd come to for why this totally unexpected thing, I think, from most smart people has happened so far in this series, which is Cleveland up to one and has really kind of controlled much of the last two games, except for maybe the fourth quarters. Why? Why is this happening? Is there anything sort of numerically oriented or within your research that can help explain this on a more granular level? Um, I think controlled is a good word to use because one of the stats that really kind of jumped out at me is uh, one of the things that sports heat tracks is time of possession. It's the amount of time, in, like in uh, in football, you obviously, if, if someone has the ball on a drive, you, that, that counts and so on and so forth. Um, now, it's... It's it's a little tougher in basketball because the ball's in the air a lot, but still they track this. And uh, LeBron has had a just an, uh, I don't want to say ridiculous amount, but an extremely high amount of possession, especially the last two games since Kyrie has been out. Um, the the leader in the league this year was I believe John Wall had the ball about eight minutes fifteen seconds a game in the regular season. On uh, the last two games, LeBron has had the ball. 14 and three-quarter minutes and 13 and three-quarter minutes. Wow. Uh, and that's um, almost single-handedly, like you said, controlling the tempo of the game. Um, and that's, uh, if there's one number that I would almost explain how um, Cleveland is, is going about slowing Golden State down, it's 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 that. that LeBron is, has the ball all the time. He's not turning it over at all. He's not shooting quickly. He's not allowing the rest of the Cavs to shoot quickly. And that's uh, really slowing Golden State down. And then it's a it's a half court game. And I'm sure you guys have gotten into this. Um, Cleveland has kind of punched Golden State State in the mouth for for you know lack of better terminology. And and Golden State hasn't responded especially well for much of the series to that. So I mean, why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that the Warriors have struggled in the half court? Because you know you look at the games that the Warriors played as a slow pace during the regular season, and they actually responded quite well. They were still an efficient team. Why has that stopped during these NBA Finals? Uh, the, it's a strategic adjustment that I think the Cavs made against the the, uh, the Hawks as well. They've, uh, they've sort of picked who they're going to make beat them, um, and basically they're going to say, uh, they've said, you, Draymond Green, uh, whenever you're involved in the pick and roll, you have to score to beat us. Um, I, I, anyone who's... The, Tons of people have broken this down very well. Mike Mike Prada on uh, SB Nation did a great job with it today. Um, he's kind of get the ball in the middle of the court, and Green isn't hitting three-pointers in the playoffs, and he's mostly looking to pass when he's a driver, and so um, the the other Cavs are just not helping on him and, and saying, all right, score over Timothy Mozgov, and, and if you can, great, but he has not been able to at all. And so... Um, 
that's kind of the, that that first little action the, the Warriors like to use to get the movement in the offense is just not giving them anything. So that either that is producing a bad shot or uh, the offense is breaking down and they're shooting some other um, shot off, not a lot of movements. Um, what I think one of the other things I've, I, I noticed is, um, and I'm not the only one, obviously, is during the season the Warriors about three and a quarter passes per possession. They're about two and three quarters passes per possession in this series. Mm. Now that's may not seem like a big deal, but that's you know from one of the the, the most ball movement teams in the league, uh, not quite as much as the Jazz, um, to one of the least. Um, and that's not necessarily a good or bad thing, but it's not how they've played and been successful this year. Okay, so then then I think the next question from there is, is this an issue of Cleveland's game plan really succeeding, or is it more uh, Golden State perhaps failing in a sense? Obviously, there, it's not going to just be one or the other, but do you lean in one direction as to where the sort of the blame falls there? First of all, I mean, you have to give credit to Cleveland. I mean, they've, they've been... Uh, really good at, at, at scheming for what Golden State wants to do. Uh, and a big part of that has been them being very physical uh, off the ball, especially with uh, Steph Curry and, and Clay Thompson. Um, so credit to them for that. But also you have to say that Golden State has not responded well. Golden State's, um, again, this is getting outside of the realm of kind of the numbers, but you watch the games and Golden State is just missing a lot of screens. And when guys are being as, as physical and tight on, on your shooters as, um, as Cleveland is being, uh, that should be the time when you can best set, set some good solid screens on guys. And they're just, they're really not getting that. And, you know, I'm kind of getting back to Draymond Green. Um, he's, when they're running the pick and rolls, and he's just whiffing a lot on that screen. It's, it's uh, almost like he's so in a hurry to make a good play because he obviously knows that it's, it's not going great for him, that he's not getting a good, you know, pick on Matthew Delhudova or Iman Shumpert and then rushing, rushing down the lane and, and shooting a crazy layup over Mozgov and it's not working. And that's not everything that's happening, but that's, I think, emblematic. Okay. So I, I, I guess I would take from that that it's a good bit of both then. And, I yeah. think that you know the the visual, especially as far as the larger consensus public, the what we're seeing visually, especially in Game Two and first half of Game Three, is that Steph Curry has not been what we are accustomed to seeing with Steph Curry. That he kind of broke out of that a little near the end of last night, and as Andy and I noted earlier, he, he still had a really good game as far as his stat line ended up looking at the end. But it, you do, I think it's impossible to look at this and say that he that it's been smooth sailing for him thus far. Are there any things that you think? Golden State can be doing differently to kind of free him up and to allow him to have the kind of impact we've seen from him previously? Or is Cleveland's scheme to really pressure him hard and Clay Thompson as well? Is that is it almost just a thing of, well, somebody else is going to have to step up? Um, I think one of the things that they want to want to think about doing, and I'm not the first person to suggest this, I think Nate Duncan um, uh, of Real GM on his wonderful podcast, listen to it, um, was talking about yesterday is it's 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 sort of not how they play, but just get out of his way, get out of Steph's way. Um, the problem is largely coming when they're they're trying to set ball screens and pick and rolls for Steph. And against Delavadova, he probably doesn't need that actually. And and so maybe with a little bit more space. And I think we saw some of that in, in the fourth quarter. Even is there's a couple times he's like, wait, you're Matthew Delavadova, I'm Steph Curry. 
I'm just going to shoot over you. I'm, I'm going to make a move. You're going to back up, and I'm going to shoot. And, um, you know, that's you can't really necessarily scheme for that unless you're going to bring another guy to the ball running way off of someone instead of, you know, when Golden State's running all these picks for staff, then there's already two defenders right by him. Are you, telling me, are you telling me Matthew Dellavedova is not the greatest Stephen Curry defender in history and cannot completely shut him down one-on-one? Because I don't know if I believe you. <laughs> well, I, I don't think they've actually put him, you know, put him on an island that much. Um, he's, he's done a good job, when, especially in kind of a pick-and-roll situation of, of sticking, sticking with him. But they really haven't just you know, given Steph the top of the floor and said, go to work. And... Um, I would like to see some proof that Delavadova can stick with him. I think we've seen kind of a couple times in semi-transition where Curry has made him look a little silly in that situation, and and um, maybe maybe something like that. And the other thing is is um, uh, when they have, especially out of timeouts, um, they've gotten some really good looks for Curry, uh, putting him off the ball, and especially with Sean Livingston in his passing, and, and then really concentrating on setting some good, solid screens for Curry. They've gotten some, some good looks that way, too. Um, so maybe just getting away from kind of that, that, that pick-and-roll initiation is, is the one way to, to loosen things up a little bit. Because, like I said, the Cavs have that schemed really well. And if, if, if Draymond Green is, uh, is not going to be effective and, and Andrew Bogut is not going to be effective as the, the screener in, in that situation, then you're, you're kind of... Boom, beating your head against a brick wall a little bit if you're Golden State. I mean, then is is the answer is that is that the best strategy? I guess given that the Cavs are doing the other the the same thing on the other end with LeBron James. You know, is is it just a game of one on one basketball to see which of Steph Curry and or LeBron James is most efficient? Uh, maybe some of that. Um, three is better than two, though. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, that's, and and you know you get you put you put Curry in that in that. Uh, situation and he's you know LeBron is doing his work from kind of the left elbow area and it's working you know he's he's doing reasonably well and and scoring and getting the bucket but he's um but but Curry is going to be doing that from you know 26 feet from the basket and a lot of his shots are going to be threes and if they go in at the same rate which you know on the season that's they're actually comparable shots um then that's advantage Golden State and then you know if you do decide to help, you have to come much farther to help on Curry than you do on, on, on James. So um, while it may be not the, the kind of the purest idea of, of, uh, of basketball, um, that's, that's kind of what the defenses are almost forcing the offenses into at this point. I love this. We're, at, we're on the highest stage of basketball. We're at the NBA Finals, and we have, we have a game that's progressed so much over the last you know half decade or decade or whatever as far as our, our knowledge of what can create great offense and what is really the best for breaking down defenses and the answer in this series might just be both teams give the ball to your best player and let them go do it and then that's it the, the win the winner wins the the tnt hero ball philosophy has, has finally turned out to be it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's true i can't believe it now uh seth yeah. i saw you post a tweet earlier today and i wanted to bring this up here really briefly you mentioned a, i believe it was an effective field goal percentage for golden state's offense you had one section was all their plays directly after timeouts, and the other section was just all their any other play. 
And I think you showed that there was a massive discrepancy between their effective field goal percentage coming out of timeouts. Like they were doing way better on those plays and really not succeeding on their others. First of all, did I get that right? And if so, yeah, no, that's, why? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, first of all, I mean, we're talking about about, about four plays a game. Yeah, that's um, true. <laughs> for, uh, on out of timeouts. But at the same time, I mean, I think if you if you think back about the games and, wa- and watch them, they've, they've gotten Curry and Thompson and, and even Green really good looks out of timeouts. Um, those are kind of situations where they've been able to draw something up. Uh, Steve Kerr and his staff have been able to draw something up that's really uh, turned kind of Cleveland's uh, scheme and physicality against them a little bit, whether or not it's, it's kind of um, you know running multiple staggered screens at once for Curry or uh, one of my favorite plays in the series where they, um, if they're not, you know, if they're just not guarding green, then use him as a screener and they got yeah. a dunk right at the end of the first half um, of game one off that. And so they've, um, and, you know, last night they, they ran a play out of a timeout where they ran a, you know, it's called a floppy set, a, 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 one, a single screen on one side of the key, double screen on the other side for, for Curry and, they just obliterated Delvadova on the screen, and Curry missed the open shot, as is the the, um, <laughs> the pattern of the league. series, I guess. Yeah. Um, but still, you're, you're getting you know consistently great looks when you have time to really set up and and attack um, kind of the overplaying style that Cle- Cleveland is playing. I think the question many would ask from there is, well, wh- so why can't they just run those plays? more often in normal sets is that just an issue of those those plays being a little bit too complex to work into your normal playbook um i don't know about too complex i think the precision is easier in those kind of those setup situations um whereas in kind of a live flow situation um i think that there's you know almost been a little bit of frustration uh with curry especially if, if you watch him off the ball, like he'll start a cut and and either Delavidova or Shumpert or someone will kind of form in, in the chest and will kind of just stop. Whereas if it's a designed play, he's like, all right, you hit me, but I'm still going to keep going where I was going. And then the guy gets screened off and he gets open. Um, and so I almost want to say just, just even commit to keep keeping moving, even if, you know, you're getting bumped the first the first couple of times and, and not sort of, you know, this is this is completely non non analytic points. Obviously, it's, yeah. No, it's cra- It's interesting how many of those we've gotten into. I mean, that that place yeah. that you just mentioned a second ago from the end of the first half in game one. I've been shocked we haven't seen that set a lot more often because that's not that complex of a set, right? With the one you're talking about is Draymond comes up to set the screen and for Curry at the top of the key. And as we've seen, the Cavaliers completely ignore Green and bring both guys to Curry. So instead of Green just rolling straight down, instead he rolls over to either the left or right side, sets an immediate pin down screen for Clay Thompson and you've got it. You've something is opening up a mismatch there because either Thompson's guy has to try and jump out with him to the three point line, leaving Draymond a wide open roll to the hoop, which is what got him that dunk in game one, or the guy has to go with Draymond, and you're leaving Thompson for a for a wide open three. Is there is there a bit of I've just been wondering about this. Is is Steve Kerr showing the slightest chink in the armor in just a couple occasions here in the series on little minutia like this? Like he's obviously done a great job overall this year and even in the series so far. But is this maybe an area that he's not attacked as frequently as maybe he could and maybe a couple other areas like that? Uh, you know, 
it's 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 super tough to say. Uh, I'm always very reticent to to, to criticize the specifics of coaching, uh, just because you know we we see so little of what's going on. There, I mean, there are things you can nitpick here and there, but at the same time, I mean, uh, part of the reason they've been a great offense all year is you know Green's ability to make those in between plays, and and so you can't. Um, it's hard to fault him too much for you know wanting to say, hey, you know, this we're make the plays that got us here, kind of, and and you know, at a, three games is not a lot to say. Um, okay, that's just not going to work. Rather than uh, <laughs> rather than okay, we've had three rough games in a row where where these things we've done well all year we're doing poorly. Right. So it's. That's often one of the. It's, it's kind of the, the best and worst trait of of, of, of coaches is, is kind of stubbornness like that. So, you know, sticking with the game plan might, in this one instance, be not serving him well. But at the same time, in a, a more macro sense, uh, it does serve him well. So, how can you hold that against him? All yeah, they're you know? eighty. They're eighty and eighteen, like he said the other day, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, now now eighty and twenty. Right. But, <laughs> yeah. It's still. I'm. I'm. Are you? Are you, are you as surprised as we are? I guess. I mean. I'm. I. I oh, thought the absolutely. series was done after. After Friday, we had a show. We said basically Warriors and four or Warriors and five, but it wasn't going to get certainly and not anything more than that. And we've we've already been proven wrong just five days later. I mean. Uh, yeah. Are you as surprised as we are? I'm. I'm completely shocked. Yes. I. I I'm pleasantly shocked because you know unpredictability is is fun. Um, but yeah, no, I thought it was going to, even with Kyrie, I thought it was going to be a, 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 a shorter series. Uh, and I just, part of it, because you knew the Cavs were going to try to, you know, muck the game up and, and be physical and slow the game down and stuff like that. But everyone's tried to do that against the Warriors and no one aside from Memphis for maybe like a game has really succeeded in it. And they're, they've done it for three straight games and that's, you know, Extremely surprising uh, to me because you just couldn't have predicted it. I guess. I mean, unless you were, you know, uh, a, a strong Cavs supporter, who of course you'd predict it. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure I saw many people really even leaning that way. No, um, hardly anyone. Well, you talk about predicting. I'm going to put you on the spot now. Do you do you really think the Cavs can win this series? And if you were making a prediction, would that be your prediction, or do you think the Warriors kind of put it together? I think we saw them starting to come together a little in the fourth last night. Maybe the David Lee thing helps them out, uh, opening things up offensively a bit. Do you think Golden State kind of reasserts their advantage here and ends up winning the series? Um, I don't know. I told you. I, was, I told you I was putting uh, you on the spot. No, no, I, I'm, I, uh, I, this, nothing about. I mean. You know, Matthew Delavadova, who you know, I I I liked the last summer as a as a backup point guard, is suddenly like the second most important player in the NBA Finals. Well, and so, you know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Seth, remember at I mean, you and I were talking at the Sloan Sports Conference this February, and who was it that was just like asking like Daryl Morey about Matthew Delavadova and why he was even on an NBA roster? Like that—that that was a, a real question. That like, 
for some reason, there was one guy with a vendetta against Michael, Matthew Della Vadova, and instead he's turned out to be probably the, the Cavs' second-best player this series. It was probably a guy who, no, I'm, I'm not going to say that. I was going to say a guy <laughs> who, he, he took his ankles out diving for a loose ball. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get hate mail for that one. But, uh, no, I, 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 I do like Della Vadova, and, and it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of right on the border between, you know, reckless and, and dirty and chippy. That's and, what I say. So, no. All right, What's well, that? that's what I've been saying. That's uh, Andy and yeah. I had this conversation earlier as well, where I think he's kind of right on that borderline, and I also think that there have been so many dirtier players in history that we <laughs> love and adore and don't say anything about it. So if that's the case, it should be the same for Della Vadova. I, I mean, given given where your show originates from. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bring up John Stockton. Yep. I mean, yeah. That... It, it, it would talk about a guy who, who would uh, stick an elbow into your ribs on a screen. So, or I'd stick a leg into your knee. <laughs> more, he would he would do that all yeah. the time. All right, well, Seth, thank you so much. Tell tell everyone where we can find your work. Um, nylonCalculus dot com. I'm I'm one of the editors of that site. We have a lot of, of uh, really fun kind of uh, analytics based stuff. I write uh, the Fancy Stats blog on Washington Post and uh, on Twitter at at Seth Bartnow. You've actually kind of cut it down a little bit. You're only writing for like like. Like half the yeah. outlets in the world, rather than like three quarters of them. There, there's more, but I, I figured to make it shorter. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Seth, thank you f- so much for joining us again, everyone. That's Seth Part now joining us on the show. We're gonna go ahead and take a break. On the other side, we've got more NBA draft talk coming coming up, talking about the risers and the fallers in this year's NBA draft. That's coming up next on the Salt City Hoop Show, ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome into the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. Sorry about that. We were just talking about all the various ways to get into the NHL playoffs. And of course, as the Stanley Cup final game for our producer John LaFollette wants to get into the hockey because it is a fun, attractive sport to watch. Super goofy and, and, and fun to watch. You, I, wrote a, ben, I wrote a post over at KSL last week for anyone that wants to read it. And it's titled, Why You Should Care About the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, the <laughs> That's lead, a good place to start. Yeah, it is. The lead-off reason was the possibility of overtime, which unfortunately we haven't had one yet in this series, in the finals, but we've had several in the previous series. Playoff overtime hockey is as exciting as sports get because three-quarters of the play, if not more, is spent with one team possessing the puck in the other team's zone, and within one second of that, the game could end at any point. It, it's it's really crazy because, like, uh, the, the quick end to, to overtime works so well. The, the sudden death works so well in hockey mm-hmm. and worked terribly in soccer. Yeah. And I, I don't love it in football. And oh, it's terrible uh, in would, football. And would be awful in basketball. <laughs> yeah, it would be like the worst thing ever. But no, for hockey, it's basically perfect because of how infrequent goals are. The ultimate goal, as I wrote in the KSL piece, the ultimate goal in every Stanley Cup Finals where the Toronto Maple Leafs don't play because they're my team, and that's and they haven't been there since 1967, which well, is awesome. You know. In every one except for those, so everyone I've ever watched, I root for a Game 7 and I root for overtime in that Game 7 because both teams' season, that's... Every time the puck crosses either team's blue line, hanging in the balance is which team is going to get six months of triumph and which team is going to get six months of of wondering what could have been. And that's to me, that's almost as exciting as sports gets. For reference, folks, my whole family's Canadian, and I grew up as a hockey guy. I played for like 20 years. I, I was way more serious. You still about play, it. right? Still, uh, well, actually, I'm out this summer just because oh. 
the scheduling it wasn't going to work scheduling wise with my with my new job and with the, with the traveling I'm doing over the rest of the summer. So, well, okay. but I'll be back next in fall. So yes, I still do play. Okay, good. Basketball. Basketball. Let's talk about the NBA draft risers and fallers. Um, kind of some uh, we we talked about this a little bit with the mock drafts earlier in the show, but I I think it's interesting why some of these players are rising and and if we can kind of identify which players those are. Maybe which of those maybe the Jazz like or don't like, uh, we, we could see what what's kind of the bigger trends are in this NBA draft. Kristaps mm-hmm. Porzingis is in the top three of Draft Express's mock draft. I, I, I've mentioned this for a couple shows in a row now. Uh, there are multiple teams who like him in the top three, have him in the top three of their draft boards. It sounds like Jonathan Giveney of Draft Express has intelligence that Philadelphia is one of those teams. I think the now, Jazz might be one of them, too, if they were up there. I would say that the Jazz may be one of those teams as well. Yep. Uh, now, you know, I don't think the Jazz are going to get a top three pick in order to find out. No. But nevertheless, they like Kristaps Porzingis a, a lot. Kind of depends, really, if Philadelphia has Porzingis or D'Angelo Russell higher. Because, you know, they may have Porzingis third, but if they have D'Angelo Russell second, he's probably there at number three as well. Yeah. Um, given Which I would the think the Lakers is... probably don't take him. The Lakers are actually a really interesting pick, and they, they, have, they have so many different people in their front office telling them different things. Uh, some of them just want the Okafor presence and, and like the idea of him next to Randall because offense always. Um, and a lot of them feel that... that Oak four Randall pairing doesn't work at all because defense is a thing that maybe they'd like to strive for at some point. And that's so. this is all assuming that Minnesota takes towns, which I think is not a foregone conclusion by yeah. any means. You know, it almost kind of reminds me of that of the 2013 draft with the the Nerlens Noel Anthony mm-hmm. Bennett was eventually the number one pick in that draft, where we might see a surprise. Now, I, I I don't think it's as up in the air as that draft was, where there were legitimately six candidates for the number one spot. Yeah, but I, I think there are probably three candidates for the for the number one spot be, for for Minnesota, and probably four or five for the number two spot. I would be pretty surprised if anybody besides Towns or Okafor went one at this point. But uh, I think you're right. I think there's a possibility, and if it is, it probably would be Russell, right? We couldn't see Porzingis or Moutier or any of or one of those guys jump to number I one. Could, I could we? see Porzingis, maybe. That would um, be crazy. It would be crazy. Uh, do, do you think it would be stupid crazy? No, not necessarily. I think there's a fully legitimate chance that guy ends up being the best player from this draft. They're, that could very easily happen. We had a tweet earlier in the show that says, uh, from B- Brian Maxwell, I am not a fan of Przingis, looks more Bargnani than Dirk, uh, and he prefers Miles Turner and Kevon Looney. Do you, I, I take it you disagree. Yeah, I, I definitely disagree with that. I don't. Uh, first, I'm not much for player comps, but I, I, I see so much to like with Porzingis in today's game. Uh there's a lot of differences between him and Bargnani defensively that I think we just casually gloss over. And, I mean, Porzingis has, what, like a seven four seven five wingspan, something like that? Yeah, Barn- he's very tall and very long. And can jump. Like, I mean, he's not he's not like a great athlete, but he's not ground-bound like Bargnani. Right. Um, I, I see a number of huge differences between those players. Campaign, or Cameron Payne, the, the Murray State point guard, is also rising. Teams having him in the top 10. A report that the Knicks are considering him at number 4. Uh, I, I mean, given... I, I, I don't trust New York Nick reports that much. I mean, <laughs> A, they have so many people in their front office that, like, someone is just leaking something to some reporter, and, yeah. and B, the reporters are, are known for making things up. Uh, so I, I'm not sure that I believe the things that I, I read out of New York. However, that's been reported as well as Trey Lyles. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know that it would be that shocking based on how quickly he's risen, and, and there are a lot of things to like about Cameron Payne. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, I, I a don't think the Jazz are taking him because, quite frankly, I don't think they're taking any point guards at number twelve just because they would have to trade Trey Burke and 
they're not going to get anything for Trey Burke is, is my understanding of the market. Uh, so I, I think you're safe to say that the Jazz are taking someone in, in positions two through five in this, in this year's draft, at yep. least at that number 12 spot. Uh, but it is interesting because if campaign rises, then that does leave room for maybe one of, say, Willie Cauley-Stein, as Sports Illustrated uh, guessed earlier uh, on their mock draft. Stanley or maybe Johnson. Stanley Johnson falls. You know, it, it does mean that maybe a better prospect at those two through five spots gets to the Utah Jazz. Yeah, and I, I like campaign, to be honest. I know that there's basically no chance the Jazz would take him, but I, I like him in, in again, as a guy going forward in today's NBA, somebody who can do multiple things that you really want guys at that position to be able to do. Last week, we asked you to put together the... the Top twelve picks on your draft board is. Do you think he's in there? Would you have I, I, you kind I of reevaluated? Him, I've started looking at him more closely. I'll be honest. I I don't want to claim to be somebody who just watches little college throughout the year and then all of a sudden becomes an expert in April. That's I'm not that person. Uh, and I, I I I do this year. I've done my due diligence basically on guys up till. The around the consensus eighteen to twenty area, area, you know, at least the realistic jazz area with that twelfth pick, and then I haven't done a whole lot of due diligence beyond there. So I didn't honestly know much about campaign for the last until recently. Mm-hmm. What I've looked at, I've I have liked. Uh, I would have to redo the board, but I do think there's a good chance he would get in there or at least be very close for me because he's he does he he has that not not as good as Steph Curry, of course, but he has that Steph Curry combination of being able to make plays and also being able to create his own offense. And at his age, he's 20, that's that's not nothing. You know, it's it's impressive. And if he builds that out and can be a good defender, could be a really valuable player at that position. Willie Cauley-Stein also seems to be following. We had a discussion with him, uh, about him, sorry, earlier in the show. Looks like his range is anywhere between about 6 to 12 at this point. Maybe we expected, maybe at 4 the Knicks could take him, although it looks like if they were to go with someone like that, maybe they go with Winslow rather than, than Cauley-Stein. Uh, I, I think I like Colley Stein a lot as a prospect because he is so good defensively because he can guard at least, uh, well, they say five positions. Force? I think he can guard probably three or four positions, but still I think that's very valuable. We, we talked about how the weakness of somebody is being exploited in these NBA finals, but I still think that there are some comparisons to a, a Tristan Thompson or, or um, Draymond Green is, is hard because nobody compares to Draymond Green, but Someone who can guard so many positions is just a great asset to have in this NBA. Uh, so that way you can switch every pick and roll rather than than having to deal with the rotations that it, that it forces. Right. I just think the main reason he's falling is because he can't shoot. No, I he can't. That... He can't shoot a lick, but neither can Rudy Gobert. I, I mean, I, I see him ultimately as a Tyson Chandler, maybe shorter, less athletic Tyson Chandler that still is pretty good uh, as a defensive player. Right. And that's exactly why I don't like him for the Jets because they already have that. Yeah, but, I mean, two or three of them would be good. Yeah, not when you need <laughs> other stuff. We, we went over that before. Yeah, okay. Uh, Kelly Oubre and Kevon Looney may also be fi- falling. I mean, it, it seems like, guys, uh, teams are looking at their production at, at the collegiate level and, and kind of being disappointed with what they see. Um, maybe a little bit of this is true with Stanley Johnson as well. Yeah. Uh, although I think his slight falling has more to do with guys like Cameron Payne moving up. Um but if you look at it, you know, where Kaminsky, Looney, and Ubre may have been almost draft equals earlier in a lot of mock drafts or in a lot of tiers, I think a lot of teams are, are focusing more towards Kaminsky and, and uh, leaving those other two by the wayside as, as potential 
uh, unwanted prospects due to their work ethic and, uh, yeah, like I said, lack of production at the college level. Yeah, Ubre is really interesting to me because, like we talked about last week, he's one of the, you know, physical profile, it's all there. He's, he's yeah. one of those highly touted athletes and things like that. You just never know how to get inside a guy's head. We talked earlier about the incredible amount of due diligence the Jazz do in that area when they look at drafting guys. Um, I don't tend to think they're, as, they're too high on Ubre. I don't know necessarily. Um Looney, I'm not, I, I probably not. I, I don't. Well, I don't have any interest in Looney at twelve. I, I, Why is that? Only, just I just th- I th- I can I th- can think of like at least fourteen guys who I'd have higher than him on my board, okay. and and even particularly within the Jazz context itself, he could be a guy to look at if you if you trade down a little. But if you're moving down, I think you I'd have more of an eye on Bobby Portis or uh, a guy like Justin Anderson, who we talked about last week, who I don't mind so much in that later later teens or early 20s type of thing. But again, like are are you taking Justin Anderson at 12? I mean, no, you'd rather no, no. but you'd rather have Justin Anderson than Kevon Looney. Yeah, I think so. Probably. Okay. I would probably disagree, but I I wouldn't fight you on it just cuz I I I don't love Kevon Looney either. I mean, I, right. I think I I think it is good that he uh held up well in Utah's altitude yeah. and in a way that a lot of prospects haven't and especially given his fatigue issues at the end of the season. Yeah. Uh, so you can say that maybe there's some unlocked potential there, and and he is working towards getting drafted and and you know wanting to be the best NBA player he can be. Maybe that's a good sign. Yeah. Um, Emmanuel Mudiay, we we talk about him every week as someone who's maybe falling, and and we're starting to see it in these mock drafts. Uh, What's teams, the lowest he's been? I I've seen him as low as six. Okay. Um, and I think that's kind of where he's going to stay at, at mock drafts for now, anywhere between that four to six range. He's very talented. It's it's just really hard with him because there's not that much game tape of him within the last nine months, and and so you're really evaluating where he has he was as a prospect one year ago compared to where other guys are right now, and especially given that his agent isn't letting him do very many workouts. Uh, it, you know, it, it, he's a real unknown. He's got the injury as well. That I mean, it, it's so hard. Me. Doesn't that seem weird to you that his that his agent? I mean, I guess Dante Exum did something sort of similar last year. He didn't work out for a ton of teams, did right? He? Including the Utah Jazz. Yeah, which I, uh, you know, who know? Maybe they they want to kind of add to the intrigue surrounding him. They want to him to be the wild card in a sense because they figure that one team, one of those lottery teams that we've talked about, how the management can be willing to gamble with those teams sometimes. Maybe that they're they're hoping somebody will. But to me, that almost is you know, if I was Moutier and I was sure that I was you know truly the prospect that some people think I am, I'd kind of want to show it, wouldn't you, and have a real chance at going second, third, fourth. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's true, but then we, we say this argument every year, and every year there's less and less access for the yeah. top guys. And quite frankly, maybe it's working. I mean, you look at, say, Ennis Cantor being drafted number three in, in his draft. If you look at Dante Exum, who you know was completely unknown, uh, other than like his YouTube and, and uh, various small competition footage, but... Yeah. Really, you know, single-digit number of games that you have on on both of those guys, and they they were kind of both rewarded for that mystery because of that intrigue uh, to be top five picks. Yeah, no, it's true, and you know, it it that that sort of unknown element seems to have worked for some guys. Yeah, I, I it's hard because I I can't think of anyone who hasn't worked that well for. Is is that's my problem. That's a good is, point. I and so you have to say, you know, maybe maybe the agents have done the research here, even though. Obviously, as fans of the NBA draft, we'd like to see more info on these guys. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take another break, our last break on the show. On the other side, we've got more jazz talk, including this this interesting hypothetical post to you on your, on your chat today on basketballinsiders.com. 
We've got that coming up next on the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700, your home on Utah for the NBA Finals. This me moving the series to 2-2. Oh, that's so close. Yeah, that was man, that was close. This, uh, this moving the series to 2-2 makes a Game 7 more likely. So, yes, I am okay. happy with that result. Okay. Although, overall, I would say I'm rooting for Tampa because Chicago's had so much glory over the last few years that let's let somebody else get a little bit. That's fair. Um, yeah. So you're rooting for Tampa in Game 7 overtime. Yeah. That Basically, seems- that's. But really, if it goes, I would prefer it going to a game seven overtime over either team winning. Like, I would be totally happy with Chicago winning a game seven overtime than Tampa winning in six or something. Yeah, no, I'm I'm cool with that. Um, let's let's talk about your question in the, in your chat today because I I thought that was really interesting. You were asked about Dante Exum, and yeah. if he were if he were drafted, if the 2014 draft, if we had to do that all over again. Where would he be selected in in the 2014 draft, knowing what we know right now? Yeah, so I actually got this question, interestingly enough, from Salt City Hoops writer Matt Pacenza. Oh, okay. Um, who, thank you, Matt, for the question in my chat, and thank you to everybody who put those in. By the way, just for to plug that really quickly, uh, Wednesdays, 2 Eastern, are my chats. The, they go up on Sunday, so you can get questions in any time between Sunday and Wednesday, basically. So if you have any stuff... Get in there. I really enjoy them. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so Matt asked if we did the 2014 draft again. Where does da- right now today? Where does Dante Exum get picked? And I found this to be an extremely intriguing question because by as we've talked about plenty of times, by a number of the traditional measures and even by certain more advanced ones like you know win shares or, or PER or something like that. Dante had among the worst seasons of the rookie class last year and among the worst of of point guards in recent memory at least, at least guys drafted that highly. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you can't consider him just in the context of that season. You have to consider the the, the circumstances that went into him before he got to the league, things like that, the role he was used in, all that stuff. And and to that, when the Jazz when he was on the court last year, the Jazz were very effective. They were they were a positive team with him on the floor. So, you know, you can't say necessarily that he was a failure in all in all aspects when he was actually really good, especially defensively. Yeah. So the answer I gave because and it was in the mo- like most of the time I have a chance to prepare for questions because I see them before they're in. Mm-hmm. Matt got this one in like right as my chat was starting so I pretty much didn't see it until I got to it so I kind of went off the top of my head for the answer I said that there's basically no doubt that he goes behind the following players if they redid it Andrew Wiggins uh, Jabari Parker Joel Embiid Marcus Smart Julius Randle Alfred Payton Yusuf Nurkic you think he goes behind Randle why just because he didn't impress yeah, because neither of those guys played very much that's all I'm saying no they didn't but Randle was really impressing people before he went down he had one game it, wait, he no, went he down didn't. in the second game. Did he really? Yeah, I swear it was later than that. I okay, we'll Google it. But in the meantime, keep going with your list. Okay, if I I may have gotten Randall wrong, if it really only was one game, I thought he had had a little more time impressing there. But anyway, and then the last one was Rodney Hood. I think Rodney Hood would almost certainly go higher hmm. than Exum if you did the draft right now. I don't I don't know if that's true because you know I I think Dante Exum had the advantage and plus minus. And, and honestly, Rodney Hood's rookie season was a lot less impressive than people are saying. His his last three months were very good. But his first three months were very bad, and I, I think it, you know the the last three months are uh, you'd rather have it be that way than the other way around. Yeah. Uh, but I I think we're we're a little bit too much on on the Rodney Hood hype train. That's possible. And a little bit not enough on the Dante I'm, Exum hype. Train. I may have so overstated him. I, I I would still draft Dante Exum over Rodney Hood. Okay, and then guys I put as close, uh, in at least a conversation. Uh, Boyan Bogdanovich, Clint Capella, and KJ McDaniel's. Um, who I uh, McDaniel's probably not. The more I think about it, I th- I still think you take yeah. some above him. But Capella and Bogdan, I mean Bogdanovich did a lot of real on court things for the Nets this year. Um, 
Capella had that this playoffs where he he kind of broke out a little bit. Um, and then I said some others like uh, Aaron Gordon, Nick Stauskas, Noah Vonley, Doug McDermott, Zach Levine, for various reasons, all also may have be interesting comparisons. You know, Gordon didn't play very much. Vonley didn't play very much because they were both hurt. McDermott basically didn't play at all because he couldn't get on the court. So he actually he's probably not. Yeah, no I, way. In fact, I mean, um, I I know Exum disappointed, but I I I still think a Randall only did play one game. Okay, um, so, so I, right I put him in the Vonley, uh, McDermott kind of yeah. category of guys who didn't play, and I'd rather have Dante Exum than them. Um, I would also say that we didn't expect, I, I mean, we expected Dante Exum to be better than what he was, but we didn't think that he would be a good player in year one. That's very true. Um, and so I, I think it's a little bit unfair to say that he completely disappointed compared to expectations when everyone knew that he was going to be very, very raw coming into the league. Well, so, all right, so let's try and quantify this. Oh, and the other one I think is Jordan Clarkson. Uh, if you if you were if we were redoing, he would at least be in the conversation right there. Okay. Maybe would maybe go above. So let's all right. So let's do it. Wiggins, Parker, Embiid, Smart, Randall, Payton. We can agree. not Randall, not Randall. Oh, sorry, not Randall. Okay, so take him out. So those five. Payton, sure. Payton, def- and Nurkic. I think you can say pretty pretty confidently uh, Nurkic. Uh, given Nurkic's Nurkic's like weird personal personality problems yeah, and like true. kind of disappearing on. One end of the floor, another at times. I, I, I don't know if that's the case. I, I, I still think Nurkic's potential is significantly less than Exum. Okay, so I mean, and let's say it's it's still the Jazz, and we're and you're the you're making a Jazz big board essentially okay. for um or no, you know what? No, let's just do it in a vacuum, just for what we think their future value is going to be, because that's more fun. Whatever uh, you want, Ben. Yeah, sorry. Um, so we've got those five. Is there a chance? I guess there's a chance he still goes sixth or maybe seventh, eighth. Yeah, I, I think he still goes top ten. I yeah. mean, you take him over Stauskas. I think you take him over Randall. I think you take him over Vonla. I think you take him over like McDermott. What about Aaron Gordon? Um, Aaron Gordon. I I take Aaron Gordon over Dante Exum. I think uh, we basically just know nothing about Gordon after last year. Is basically what's yeah, resulted. that's true. I mean, I think basically the Magic take him number four for the same reasons that they did in last year's draft. Right. Um, so I I don't I don't know I, I think he still goes top ten I will I I mean I will say that it was a legitimately disappointing season but ultimately you still have to look at his potential you know you've looked at even just how much weight and strength he's gained apparently over these last few months six can, pounds can, apparently of muscle is what I've heard which is which is that's you know, a lot ridiculous in yeah. two months uh what about Bogdanovich what about Bogdanovich and Capella those, I, are, I just, those two are interesting to me. Bogdanovich I just don't think has potential you know I I think he's not going to be a NBA level starter or all star. He doesn't have the all star potential that XM his, does. Yeah, his ceiling is nowhere close. Um, and and that to me means XM would be drafted number you know higher than Bogdanovic. Right. Uh, Capella does have potential, but I don't know if he gets there on the offensive end. I mean, to me, I I, I think he probably still goes below XM. Okay. They're actually kind of similar prospects. In, Interestingly, in they are other than are. the complete difference in size. But that was a good question. Thank you, Matt, for that question. And also, you guys should read Matt Pacenza's stuff on Salt City Hoops. He's, he's getting a few more things out for us lately. Yeah, well, let's do the plug. Um, Salt City Hoops on on ESPN. We are the sorry, we are the ESPN Troop affiliate of the Utah Jazz. You can check out all of our work on saltcityhoops.com. You can also listen to replays of this show on either iTunes or Stitcher or on saltcityhoops.com. So check us out there. Um, you can also follow me and you on Twitter at Andy B. Larson, at Ben Dowsett. Ben That's been another Dowsett. Salt City Hoops show. Ben underscore Dowsett. Thank you. Another Salt City Hoops show. Thanks so much for listening.